Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we of course cover the latest on the war in Ukraine. We have also asked people from Ukraine to tell us about the place they call home. When I was growing up, I didn't, I guess, really appreciate that I was growing up in Kyiv. For me, Kyiv means freedom to be myself. This is the city that I call my home. I can't really imagine living in any other city. Plus, a new play at the Young Vic in London tells the story of Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat. What I found myself attracted to about this was that actually it was about artists meeting each other in a place where they ask themselves the central question, who am I? Do I still have the power or do I have the power that I believe that I should have? And the dance in front of a competitor, a dance where they look at each other's spirits. All that and much, much more in the next hour, here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with the Foreign Desk Explainer. Andrew Muller explains to us how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has seen many high-profile Western conservatives scrambling to distance themselves from their former idol, President Putin. It is not necessary to have lived very long to be able to recall a time when, if Russia had invaded a neighbour and menaced the free world, one could have been confident that in the first rank of those linking arms to stare Moscow down, one would have found the United States Republican Party. Yes, let us pray for the salvation of all of those who live in that totalitarian darkness. Let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth. They are the focus of evil in the modern world. It is both idle and terrifying when considering the calamity unfolding in Ukraine to reflect that things could be worse, but things could be worse. The 2020 US elections could very easily have gone the other way, and the West's response to Russia's aggression could, right now, be substantially at the mercy of a president and a party whose attitudes to Russia in general, and Vladimir Putin in particular, might be extremely charitably described as equivocal. But we look forward to a lot of very positive things happening for Russia, for the United States, and for everybody concerned, and it's an honor to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Indeed, even as Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, America's conservative establishment had gathered in Orlando for the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, an event which is, such are our times, both the key conclave deliberating upon the policies and philosophies of modern American conservatism and an absolute dingbat jamboree. The keynote speaker this year, former US President Donald Trump, described Vladimir Putin as very savvy and a genius, among other praise. Yesterday, reporters asked me if I thought President Putin was smart. I said, of course he's smart, to which I was greeted with, oh, that's such a terrible thing to say. The problem is not that Putin is smart. The Real problem is that our leaders are dumb. One can reasonably find this all pretty weird without necessarily subscribing to the full-spectrum conspiracy theories. 
Amusing though it is to believe that one day a statue outside the GRU's Moscow headquarters will celebrate the astonishing deep cover operation run by Lieutenant Colonel Melania Knaus, it is probably all a lot simpler and vastly more pitiful than that. At which we'll defer to the assessment of Fiona Hill, the former US National Security Council official who briefly attempted to advise President Trump on matters Russian and who spoke to the Foreign Desk last October. And this is the sophistication of Putin and the people around him. They didn't have to have compromising information to deploy to basically manipulate him. Putin never, ever criticises Trump. I mean, he says things that are ambiguous and often in Russian they can be translated in different ways, but they can always be translated in something that sounds generally positive and perhaps complimentary, even if there's a little edge to it, which there often was. Putin knew he could manipulate Trump in other ways. He didn't have to have compromising material or he didn't have to blackmail him. He could just flatter it. It is fair to say, however, that both Trump and Trumpists have had a fascination with Putin's Russia, even as Putin has conducted himself as largely openly hostile to the United States and the wider Western world, which the United States purports to lead. Some of this has been, by any reasonable definition, dodgy, and may have been dodgier than we have yet fully comprehended. If one scrutinises the not-short list of Trump associates who have been indicted or convicted, and those perhaps yet to be, connections to Russia are a recurring theme. This is to say nothing of the curiosity that Trump's first impeachment was occasioned by his efforts to extort Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky into dishing dirt on Trump's political rivals, specifically Joe Biden, whose son Hunter was employed, admittedly strangely, by a Ukrainian gas firm. But it's not just that. Among Trumpists, and certainly in Trump himself, there is a more atavistic infatuation with Putin. They see Putin as a muscular, rigorous, austere nationalist, the anti-Trudeau, the non-Macron. If Putin came over here, I would probably join his forces and take out these rhinos that we have and the corrupt government. Putin is a a genius, and he is a genius. He's playing the rest of the world. chess where Biden is playing checkers. The way he's taking control as a leader of the, you know, the rest of Europe. They take at face value the subtexts of the bare-chested horse-riding photo ops, which are at least a more convincing projection of machismo than dancing like a massive weirdo to a village people song. Among Trump-friendly media and their viewers, it may also be a case of their hatred of their more liberal fellow citizens exceeding any regard for their own country. Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? These are fair questions, and the answer to all of them is no. But it's not just in the US that Putin finally removing his extremely thin mask might have an impact on politics. Poland, Hungary and Turkey, whose leaders have also borrowed from Putin's strongman shtick, have understood that there is now a side to be on, and Russia's is not it.
Though the international political effects of Putin parking himself beyond the pale will be felt mostly on the right, there will also be an amount of overdue comeuppance on the crankier fringes of the Western left, still cleaving to a Soviet-era idea of Moscow as a bulwark of anti-imperialism, a delusion which has endured despite being ridiculous during the Cold War and idiotic since. When the European Parliament voted overwhelmingly this week to condemn Russia's attack on Ukraine, 13 MEPs voted against, in proportion roughly nine parts far left headbanger to four parts far right kook. Nevertheless, most of the unseemly scrambling we have witnessed and will witness to gain distance from Vladimir Putin has been on the conservative side, just as much of his fan club in the US has fallen mercifully silent. In France, the hyper-conservative presidential candidate Marine Le Pen has hastily and amusingly binned hundreds of thousands of election brochures which showed her shaking hands with her hero. Putin, car Vladimir Putin a tort. Il a tort. Il a franchi la ligne rouge. Euh, euh, c'est inadmissible, c'est inacceptable, sans aucune ambiguïté. Je veux dire, il a attaqué l'Ukraine, il a violé sa souveraineté, il a violé ses frontières. Il n'y a pas de discussion là-dessus. Que la France soit aux côtés de l'Ukraine. Because all of Putin's overseas acolytes are obviously just the worst, they will doubtless return to their enabling and fawning should he be seen to gain the upper hand, however brutal the methods he may employ to do so. But the kind of reputation Putin has cultivated does not long survive being bested, even temporarily, by Ukraine's 2006 Dancing with the Stars champion. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Let's continue then with Russia. While sanctions are punishing Russia's top leadership and oligarchy, it will be easy to forget ordinary Russians both in and outside the country. Thousands have been arrested for protesting in Russia over the past five days, while those living abroad in Europe and elsewhere don't necessarily share the views of their government. For more on how Russians across Europe feel about the war in Ukraine, Monaco's Alexei Korolev sent us this report. Across Russia these days, a wave of disbelief and protest at Vladimir Putin's actions. But outside Russia too, there is anger. Across Europe, Russian nationals are speaking out against the war in Ukraine. Russian people are against the war with Ukraine. It's just heartbreaking to see that I can, uh, you know, go to the Russian embassy here and uh, protest and uh, my friends in Moscow have to, you know, risk their lives. I don't want it. I don't want that people die. And I don't want people die there. I don't want people die in Russia. I don't want, like, I don't want it at all. These Russians are far removed from the realities of conflict. They are removed from their homeland, some by choice, some by necessity, and they feel furious and powerless. Furious because horrific crimes are being perpetrated in their name. Powerless because there's very little they can do about it. Hello, my name is Jana. I'm living now in Germany, in Leipzig, but originally I'm from Moscow. I think it's important at least for me to point out that I don't know anyone around me who would agree with this actions or who would support 
Putin or his government or his allies. So I have a feeling that something is being done in my name and in the name of my friends and relatives without any consent of ours. And um, I feel this totally unfair, especially when now people are dying because of these decisions. I feel very angry and I feel ashamed. My first name, Katya, I live in Barcelona. Like what is happening now is a war. And actually, I I think after this war, I have nothing to tell more. I mean, I just wanted to cry because I feel that I have no power because uh, I, I'm ashamed that that someone from my country, not someone, the government doing such horrible things. Um, it's not about something human and it's incredibly not fair. And the word thing that I don't feel that I could change something because I'm just a human. But amid the despair, there's also defiance. These messages are from Anna in Luxembourg and Maria in Vienna. Yes, we are all under an avalanche of stress and fear for our future, for our families and friends across the world. But the best thing we can do right now is to support each other, stay kind and avoid online fights. At least that's what we can do, in my opinion. And the second thing is a great opportunity to unite, to speak up and to protest. I grew up in Russia in a very difficult region. And I remember this feeling of being powerless. And today I woke up and I slightly grasped this feeling of being powerless. And I got a reaction like, no, I don't want to feel powerless because it doesn't matter how many followers you have, doesn't matter where you live, you can always do something. Just open your eyes, you can always do something. If you're powerless in the social media, you can write letters to newspapers, to some business owners, corporations. You, you can write letters, you can write emails. It, you always can do something. The only thing we have to do is not to be silent now. All of us, doesn't matter where you come from, Russia, Ukraine, we have to speak for peace, all of us. For Monocle, I'm Alexei Korolev. You are listening to the curator Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. For the stack this week, I had the pleasure to speak with Ukraine-based photographer Mark Neville and his latest project. Mark, I mean, you are at the moment in Ukraine. Can you give us the latest update of where you are before we talk about your projects, actually? Sure. So I've been living in uh, central Kiev near Maidan since about late 2020, so about a year and a half. And I woke up on Thursday morning to the sound of explosions and sirens. So this is yesterday morning. And uh, I lived there with my partner. And it was clear that a full-scale invasion from Russia was being undertaken immediately from all the news reports and uh, reports of casualties shelling all over the country, basically. So we spent the day in Kiev, my partner and I, Lukira, and then we decided, what are we going to do? Should we stay in Kiev or should we try and move west to western Ukraine near Poland? And actually, we had a report in that they were going to try and target the presidential house, which is about 50 meters away from our home in Kiev. 
So we decided we could not really risk that because if they're going to start shelling within 50 meters of where we live, I'm sorry, I just don't want to put myself through that. So we decided the best thing to do is be to, you know, to come to Lvov, which is where we are now. So we just arrived literally one minute ago after a, a 22 hour car journey, which was basically mostly full of traffic jams because everybody is trying to move west to escape the conflict. Of course, there's shelling here as well in the West, but it's slightly less vociferous than it is in Kiev, in and around Kiev at the moment. That's very haunting, uh, Mark. And first of all, tell us, what's your connection actually with Ukraine? Because I know you've started to go there quite a lot, I believe from 2015, is that correct? That's correct, Fernando. So basically, I was working on a project about mental health issues in the British military. I made a book called Battle Against Stigma, the stigma of mental health issues in the military, basically. And I made it following a kind of residency, if you like, and embedding with 16 Air Assault Brigade, the paratroopers in Helmand, Afghanistan. So I, I had spent three months with the paratroopers in Afghanistan during that conflict in 2010. I came back with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, decided to make a book about it. I made a book about it, and it was actually seized by UK border force because they didn't want it coming out. So it was banned by my own country. And yet the same year it came out in 2015, I got an email from Kiev military hospital in Ukraine saying, we heard about your book. We've got all these guys and women coming back from the front line suffering with these invisible wounds, you know, trauma, war trauma, and we don't know how to treat them. We don't have any experience of treating PTSD. So So they said, do you have a Ukrainian language version of your book? And I said, I'm really sorry, I don't, but I'm going to have it translated into Ukrainian for you. I was so touched, so moved that a post-Soviet country, in inverted commas, a post-Soviet country would be so forward thinking about treating mental health issues that they should want my, my small amount of knowledge found in this book that I've made. So I had it translated, I sent them a PDF of the translation, and I thought, no, it's not enough, I'm going to go and visit. So 2015, I went to Kiev for the first time to visit the military hospital, and I just fell in love with Ukraine. I fell in love with the people, the food, the culture, the history, and I'm pretty well-traveled. And I have to say that I've never had that same feeling with any other place or country or people. And then every time I had an opportunity to come to Ukraine for work or, or not for work, I would come. And so by 2020, I thought, why are you still living in London when your heart is in Kiev? So, so I moved, you know. I also met my partner who I live with now, Ukiria, and that, that was it. I just thought, I'm moving. So I've had this ongoing relationship with Ukraine for five or six years, but it had always been in my mind right from 2015 to make this book called Stop Tanks with Books to try and end the conflict in eastern Ukraine. Because as most people think, the conflict began like three weeks ago or something, but it didn't. It started in 2014. Do you imagine? It's not really point- a surprise, is it? It's not. It's really not. But the West has chosen to ignore it for eight years. So they barely reported on it. They did nothing to help in real terms. And now, of course, surprise, surprise, it's a major global catastrophe waiting to happen. And it's still waiting to happen because no one's doing anything about it. The sanctions aren't tough enough. The EU is still prevaricating about whether to stop SWIFT payments going through Russia. 
they should have enabled NATO membership for Ukraine immediately, immediately. And they're still prevaricating about it because what the West never really understood was that Russia only responds to deterrence. It does not respond to appeasement or negotiations. And when I say Russia, I mean the Kremlin. I don't mean Russian people. I'm very pro-Russian people, but I'm deeply anti the Kremlin. And Mark, it's so interesting that yeah. I, I believe, like as a photographer, you you would know the power of an image as well. I've seen the images of stop tanks with books. It's it's just amazing. What did you want to portray from Ukraine in that project? Did you want it to kind of make people warm up to, to Ukrainians? Because there's some very touching images as well. It comes to mind, uh, I believe, one of the most famous images from the book, which is the Ukrainian woman uh, like smoking a cigarette. I mean, there's so much to decipher in that image. Thank you. I, I'm really delighted it's touched you in some way, Fernando. Well, basically, every book should have an aim, I believe. So although I've taken thousands of images in Ukraine, I left out some of the best images, in fact, in the edit of this book, because they weren't serving the overall aim and ambition of the book. So the book is to really engage the Western audience and make them see versions of themselves, recognize versions of themselves in these portraits of Ukrainians, because Ukrainians have been completely misrepresented for eight years now as a result of the Kremlin propaganda machine pumping out all this misinformation about Ukrainians being fascists, or which is complete nonsense. I've never heard such nonsense ever. But unfortunately, some of it got picked up by Western media and propagated and disseminated. Not all of it, but quite a lot. So it's about redressing that balance. And the other thing I've tried to do, not just through the images, but through the book as a whole, is provide other kinds of portraits of Ukrainian people. So these portraits come through short stories by Ukrainian novelist Luba Yakinchuk, who's written incredible, heartbreaking stories about the Russian-occupied Donbass, uh, where the Russians have been since 2014. You know, people have been kidnapped, tortured, set on fire. I mean, just awful, awful, awful stories. And so there are these short stories. There are my photographs. There's also research from the Center for Eastern European Studies in Berlin about the political views of the 2.5 million people who have already been displaced by the war since 2014. And there's my call to action. And the call to action is very strong and explicit and activist. And it's saying, allow Ukraine to join NATO immediately. No bureaucracy, no red tape, make it happen. It's saying really strict, imposable, controllable sanctions need to be put in place and support for Ukraine on all levels and start thinking about them as, as your friends, not as this other because the war will not stop with Ukraine. It will go on, Putin will go on to invade Poland and Lithuania and Latvia. This is just the beginning, unfortunately. So now is the time to act. And that's what the book is saying. So I, I made it at breakneck speed in January. February, it was ready to send out. Last week, we sent out 100 copies for free to politicians, to media, to celebrities, to negotiators, to ambassadors, all the people we think could possibly help Ukraine in some way. And, and it's about connecting to people emotionally through the book as well. So I really believe that things change because of people's emotions, you know, public opinion changes because of our emotions towards something. And people do develop emotional relationships towards photo books. 
And that's what I, I'm praying they're going to do with this as well. You know, it's, it's often a poem from World War I that can change public opinion about a conflict or, or a song about Vietnam or a painting, or in this case, I hope a photo book. But I think it's those things, it's those art pieces of art that really change perception and get people on board and behind something. So we're desperately trying to get these books out as quickly as possible. I'm stuck in Ukraine, trapped here for the moment, but as soon as I can get out, I'm going to Istanbul where the books are stored, where they were printed, and I'll be sending out another three or 400 copies to this target audience who we're trying to influence. And our beautiful piece from The Urbanist this week as Russian bombardments continue to target Ukraine's urban centers, forcing citizens to the borders or to seek shelter on the ground, we ask people from all over the country to tell us about the place they call home. Here are the letters from Odessa and Kyiv. My name is Alia Chandra. I live in Kyiv. This is the city where I grew up. This is the city to which I returned after a brief period of living in the United States. This is the city that I call my home. I can't really imagine living in any other city. The first thing that you would notice about Kyiv, the thing that is really iconic about it, are the gold domes. The golden pear-shaped domes of our cathedrals that stand against the blue sky. Another name for Kiev is the Second Jerusalem, because there are so many churches there. Kiev is a city where I feel safe at night, that I can go anywhere at any time of the day and I will feel totally safe and protected. This is a city where we also see the scars of the Soviet Union on its streets. We see the crumbling Soviet buildings But they are interspersed with buildings from the 20th century, from the 19th century. It's a bit of a hodgepodge of architecture, I guess. It's also a city of a lot of parks. Once it was the greenest city in the world, or so the legend goes. In any case, you will be surprised how many parks there are in Kiev and how green it is. This is a city where it is safe to swim in the river. The third largest river in Europe goes for Kiev, Dnipro, and each summer we go there to spend time at the beach. And I know that this is something not many capitals have because of pollution. It's a city of theaters also. It's a city of music. It's the city of my friends and my family. Right now, you know, the only memory that comes to mind are the pictures of Khrushchev Street. This is our central street. After World War II, Kiev was basically obliterated by the Nazis and also by the Soviet troops that were retreating. They just exploded the whole center of the city. Another picture that comes to mind is the demolition of the Dormition Cathedral in Kiev Pechersk Lavra. It's like one of the central monasteries of the Orthodox world. So there was this church from the 11th century. And during World War II, it was destroyed. And we still don't know exactly who did it, either the Nazis or the Soviets, but probably the Soviets. This all comes to mind to me now because I'm witnessing the scenes of destruction on the streets of my city. And they are so similar to these photos from World War II. It breaks my heart. 
we got a warning from the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church that the Russian invaders will try to bomb our Sofia's Cathedral. This is a UNESCO site. It's also from the 11th century. It was built by Prince Yaroslav the Wise. It's one of my favorite places in Kiev. There was just like some data, I don't know where they got it, that the Russian invaders might try to bomb it. And that is totally plausible because they're setting cruise missiles into apartment buildings. They totally demolished the central square in Kharkiv. And I'm just devastated when I imagined that Sofia might be gone. It's just heartbreaking. You know, my grandparents, they lived through the war, World War II. And they told me after that how the whole population of the city went out to restore, to rebuild everything that was damaged. And I remember these pictures of just the rubble on Khrushchev Street and all the old buildings from the 19th century that were destroyed there. But I'm just thinking, will we have to rebuild Khrushchev again? Will it be demolished like Kharkiv's Freedom Square? Our foreign minister said that there will be hard times ahead and a lot of beautiful buildings will be destroyed, but we will rebuild everything together with our friends. And I'm just seeing these images of my grandfather and grandmother building Kiev out of ashes after the Second World War. And, you know, yes, Kiev was rebuilt, but so much was lost, so much history and culture. But I also know that the most important thing is for a nation to be strong enough to be resilient enough and to be deep enough to produce these monumental works again because really the beautiful buildings in cities they're only the product of the human spirits and if that is strong then they will be rebuilt maybe even better than they were i do not know what our cities will look like after maybe this bombing of the cities it will be really a symbolic break with the past a break with the Soviet past, we can try to build our story anew and not have the reminders of the Soviet Union standing everywhere around us. When I was growing up, I didn't, I guess, really appreciate that I was growing up in Kiev. My life basically revolved around my school and my music school and just my friends. And, you know, it was very convenient because I basically didn't have to travel anywhere. The library was closed, the school, the music school, the store. I remember also just being free with my friends to go places in Kiev, explore. <laughs> in the winter, we went sledding on the nearby hills. We went to theaters. My mom, she always liked to take me to theaters and we just dressed up and we went to an opera theater. And I remember there was a time when the tickets, they were so cheap that getting there on public transport, it was more expensive than the cheapest ticket to go to the opera theater. There was a time like that. I also then came a moment that I understand that I could make Kiev better. <laughs> because for instance, we have a lot of traffic jams and I know that bikes can help solve that. So I worked a little bit on the bike association and we planned like bike routes and how to promote biking infrastructure. And a lot of people that I know, they continue working to make Kiev better. I guess what for me Kiev means is freedom to be myself and really to be engaged and create the story of the city that I live in. Anything that I can imagine, I can implement in Kiev. That's really an empowering feeling.
I remember for some time I went away to work in the United States and then I came back and there was just this overflowing feeling of empowerment when I returned. I feel that every stone in the city is my own, that every person in the city is somebody I could talk to, somebody that either I could help or could help me. Of course, it is the capital. It is the symbol of our statehood, of our nationhood. It's no surprise that Russia wants to take over Kiev. I mean, whoever controls Kiev will control Ukraine. And, you know, like just growing around these uh, government buildings like the Verkhovna Rada, our parliament, or the cabinet of ministers, and having the experience of going inside them and talking to people who work in the state authorities, I just get this feeling that, yes, this is my government. I can influence them. They are working for me. And this is why I'm so incredibly angry that somebody would try to take over my city by force and take over my nation by force. If they take over Kiev, then they will have symbolic power over the Ukrainian nation, which is why everybody is just resisting and Kiev is just fighting back heroically. You know, they say that Kiev... There's also a city built on seven hills like Rome. We do have a lot of hills that overlook our city. And I have a favorite hill in which I like to go and just sit there at the sunset and look at the city before me as it glimmers and its sparkling lights to imagine all the human lives, all the human stories that take place behind each of those sparkling lights. I would go on my favorite hill just to feel the city pulse and live and just spend an evening with my favorite city. My name is Vitaly Rosman, and this is my love letter to Odessa, my home city where I was born and raised. Odessa is a pearl of Ukraine, actually the pearl of the Black Sea. Every single person in Ukraine who has been to Odessa loves it to the bones, not only from Ukraine, I had many friends visiting Odessa from US or Europe. A lot of Russians visiting Odessa and they all love it. So for me, it's basically terrifying to see what's happening right now and pretty unimaginable. Odessa was built 200 plus years ago by French and Italian architects. And this city center reminds of Paris a lot. Every time I've been to Paris, actually, it reminds me of Odessa at a scale, of course. But if you've been to Paris, you can imagine what Odessa is like. It's a beautiful, beautiful city built on the Black Sea with lots of amazing architecture, among which is the Opera House, which is one of the most beautiful opera houses in Europe. Apart of that, we have many UNESCO spots, which are protected by UNESCO, like heritage, lovely parks, amazing beaches, I see the center of Odessa, I see the opera house, the square next to it with a fountain, with lots of flowers, with children playing, and some artists showing their pieces of art, maybe some people doing performances. It's summertime, a lot of tourists, people are having fun, people feel safe, people feel that life is happening right now. I mean, for me, actually, Odessa is first everything, everything in my life that happened for the first time pretty much happened there from my birth until the 27 years old. I went left the US first and then basically started traveling around the world, but I was always coming back to Odessa. I could not be outside for a long time. So even when I was working in the United States, I was coming to Odessa probably four or five times a year to see my family and to take a walk. 
when I talk about Odessa, my heart is full with love. You can probably hear it from how my voice has changed. This is the true love of my life. Not only my life, everybody who lives in Odessa loves this city so, so much. We call it actually our mother, that the city is our mother. Even from this, you can understand what Odessa means to the people who was born and living there. The house of my parents is literally probably 500 meters away from the beach. When I was a kid, I used to, in the summertime, I used to run barefoot to the beach and spend the whole day swimming in the sea and playing with my friends, of course. I mean, pretty much like any kid would do. But yeah, growing up, being a student or even at the university, I would spend a lot of time in the city center, walking down the streets, spending some time in the park. Right now, the spring is coming. The city is going to be amazingly beautiful. We have a nice area, a walking area along the seaside where people usually go and take a, a long walk on the weekends or on weekdays when the weather is nice. And Odessa now is a very, very modern city. We have a lot of amazing restaurants being opened by our people and very modern and hipster, I would say, cafes with the culture where people come and communicate and they do some stuff, they create something. We have a lot of artists in Odessa. We have a lot of creative people. Lately, we had one of the parks recovered and there was created a public space, huge public space. We call it a green theater where a lot of concerts have been held in summertime. It's an open air cinema, a lot of fairs, trade fairs, people who create some crafts. Every month you have this crafts fair there. It's just a very, very vivid life is happening in Odessa. Odessa is also a seaport. Odessa is known as the Seagate of Ukraine because Odessa and cities next to Odessa have major ports, which are, by the way, blocked now by the Russian naval ships. You can compare it to, for example, Genoa. Last time I've been to Genoa, I felt the spirit of a big, big port city with a huge diversity, with lots of nationalities. Odessa is known to be, I think, 50 plus nationalities in the city, a huge Bulgarian population, a huge Jewish population, a huge Moldovian population, Georgians, Russians, of course, Ukrainians, a lot of a lot of different people, Greeks, of course, who live in Odessa. Odessa actually was known to be where it is. Even before Odessa, there was another city which was established by Greeks a long, long time ago. So you can imagine how diverse and rich the history of this city and this area is. One thing that tears my heart apart is the photo where people put the barricades next to the opera theater and they put the sand in there, you know, like to protect from the bullets, to protect from the tanks. They put those metal constructions to protect against tanks. And I remember that kind of photo from 1945 in the World War II when Odessa was occupied by fascists. And I saw that picture, that was a famous picture. Every Odessa citizen saw from the very childhood when Odessa was occupied and it was destroyed largely. And right now, seeing those barricades reminds of that picture that I saw from the World War II. And it really, really makes my heart cry. And I just don't want this to happen again. What's happening right now, it's a huge crime against humanity. And I see the people of Odessa united. Everybody now doing whatever they can. People are building barricades. People are helping. They go to defend the city in those groups of the territorial defense. 
people help with the supply of food and water. Those people who want to leave to go to safer places, they're being helped with that. So the unity of the Ukrainians and particularly of Odessa people is amazing now. And that spirit, that kind of spirit will never disappear. And I feel so, so proud today to be Ukrainian and to be from Odessa. I just hope that our city and our country will stand and this aggression, this war will end as soon as possible. So people can stop dying and people can go back to their lives and to what we love doing in peaceful life. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. A new player, The Young Viking London, tells the story of the artist Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat as they become collaborators on a joint exhibition in New York in the 80s. Monaco's Robert Bowne spoke to the play's director Kwame Kwai Armagh and the stars Jeremy Pope and Paul Bettany in our studio at Midori House. What's the crux of this? play? Is it a kind of father and son story? Is it a, a generation clinging onto power and giving away power story? Is it simply the story of a, of a friendship? What's the kind of central conceit of it for you? I think it's always really hard to kind of boil it down. To open and, with and, such and, a no, no, ridiculous no, 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 not at all. It's not a critique of your question. It's actually an, a, a critique of my inadequacy to answer it in the way that I'd love to. But quintessentially, what I found myself attracted to about this was that actually it was about artists meeting each other in a place where they asked themselves the central question, who am I? Do I still have the power or do I have the power that I believe that I should have? Yeah. And the dance in front of a competitor, a dance where they look at each other's spirits. And that's a really long way round of saying, yes, it is for me a play about generation of artists looking at each other and saying, who am I? Yeah. And what will I be at the end of this collaboration? And I guess two men as well who are very used to wanting to say that their work speaks for itself. And obviously when you put this stuff on the stage, these men have to speak for themselves. But in the closed confines of each other's studios, we start off in a gallery, but everything is in kind of private space, isn't yes. it, as well? Yeah. I think that's the genius of what Anthony's done, actually, is that, and actually what both these brilliant actors do, they give us a kind of window at the beginning of who both Warhol and Basquiat are, the, the ones that we think we know. Yeah. And then they kind of open a door and then they take us into their private rooms. And in there, they invent. And it, it's a beautiful speculation that is based on, in my humble opinion, based on what we know of these men, but also what we dream about who they might be in conversation with an equal, with a peer. Yeah. And these actors do this, actually. The, both Paul and Jeremy, they open that door, we go inside that private room, and then they exit through that door at the end of the play. And I have found myself, um, we're at the last beats of rehearsal. So, you know, it, one always is very cautious and 
I'd like to touch wood, but you said not to bang because of the microphone. <laughs> I think for the sake of the production, we need to do Thank some Thank you. So I'm touching, wood. Yeah, I'm touching wood, <laughs> if not at least banging it, um, that, that I hope that the audience will feel the way that I felt actually just observing these two very beautiful artists, Paul and Jeremy, inhabit these icons, but yet make them their own. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I've got two um, two blushing actors here then, in that case. A, a ringing endorsement, Kwame. Paul and Jeremy, I mean, we go straight away into kind of the, uh, as Kwame says, the kind of, the, the, we, we go from the public face of these two two guys to, to something approaching the, the private the private personas of them. Um, Jeremy, I'll start with you. How do you how do you start prepping um, for this? Yeah, it's an interesting space that I'm in today because we are still in process and we're still in rehearsals and we're still finding and unpacking and it's been a beautiful experience. For me, the thing that I found to be the most resourceful um, in discovering who Jean is and was, was his art and is his art. There was such a clear channel from what he was feeling emotionally, spiritually, to what was being represented on the canvas. So I used that as my information to get an insight of where he was in his mind and at a, at a certain time. So, you know, we, we, we have the privilege of seeing photographs. Photos, I think, to say a lot. So we, there's a lot of photography of, you know, Jean and Andy and what their relationship looked like in, the, in those imageries. And I use that. But it's ultimately just been using the text and, and digging and digging deeper into finding the soul of who these men were and are. And I have such the privilege to do it every day, you know, with Kwame's direction, but with Paul being there and his openness as an artist. I missed theater for that reason of how open and naked people are willing to go and be with you. I don't feel alone through this process. So it's it's been, you know, something that maybe, you know, before we started rehearsals felt very scary to take on these icons and these men has now been very therapeutic and I think one of the most beautiful projects I've ever been a part of. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing, Paul. I mean, these two sort of literally these icons, these yeah. great artists, two of the great artists of the 20th century, two artists that have sort of spoken about you know, everyone's first thought is of those guys when you think of the great artists, especially that amazing, vibrant New York art scene. Where do you, where do you start as a performer with Andy Warhol? It's a big one. The stuff in that chalice could be beautiful, but it could be poison, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> well, what do you do? You, you watch a few docs, <laughs> read a few books, you know? Uh, and, and I was uh, a really big fan of both Basquiat and Warhol, Basquiat actually for a brief while went to the same school as my kids go to and I have a fascination with him and a fascination with Warhol and actually I had seen the the collaboration mounted at the Whitney yeah. a couple of years before I got a call about this and I got the call about this and although I was fascinated I kind of said to Dennis the producer no because I couldn't quite see a way to get out from underneath the wig and the glasses and the... Yeah. <laughs> and that sort of carefully crafted public persona. And then two things happened. I read the script and it felt like a revelation to me. And it's I, not a bad piece of kit. It's really not a bad piece of kit. <laughs> and and then I read Warhol's diaries, which he didn't write. He downloaded to every morning to his office just on a phone call. And it written in these long, circuitous sentences. So you have to then presume that there was a different Andy that was hidden and that's why this 
script felt like a revelation. And then getting into rehearsals, I haven't... There's a sort of meta thing going on that Andy hasn't painted in 25 years, and I haven't been on stage for 25 years. <laughs> and getting into rehearsal on a play with this group of actors and with this director and with this writer, it has been really therapeutic, actually, and, and quite an extraordinary process. And remember, the collaboration is on now at the Young Vic. You're listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. This week marked the return of the global countdown as well, and this time I looked at the Colombian charts. It's finally on the programme at the risk of throwing in a quite profound understatement. There hasn't been much to cheer or to cheer us in the news over the past week, but we've decided to find a little light amidst the shade. Monocle senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco, surely the man to do exactly that. He's here. It's the return this week of the global countdown, Fernando. Where are we going to go and what are we going to find there? Well, Tom, today I decided to go to Colombia, which, musically speaking, I think is a very interesting one because I think Puerto Rico and Colombia, they dominate kind of the Latin American music scene. There's so many local artists from Colombia doing so well. So I decided, what are they listening, actually? Um, uh, and is there a bit of uh, sunshine sound? Is that the kind of vibes we're going to be getting into? Lots of sunshine. And, if, and I think you said, Tom, we're living in a very difficult time. But, you know, I think people would appreciate as well to listen to some music and, and everything. And that's why we're here with the Global Countdown. We'll see how appreciative they may <laughs> Maybe or may you're not, not going to like the songs, actually. hear the tracks. Um, <laughs> but let's start, as we always do, Fernando, at uh, number five. Number five, we have Ryan Castro with Mujeriego. Let's have a listen. Una copita de ron Por culpa de la calle, el dinero y el alcohol Me volví mujeriego, perdóname señor Oh, that's a sudden burst of energy. It was quite moody. And quite it, moody at the beginning, but I, th I think the track is quite upbeat in the end. And Mujeriego is a womanizer. So, I mean, the track is very simple, Tony. And I think, you know, it's kind of reggaeton vibes, urbano music. It's about, you know, drinking run and having some fun. And he says in the song, I became a womanizer, forgive me, sir. I am a womanizer. I'm not denying it. Uh, so, you know, that that's the vibe. And Ryan Castro is interesting because he's a rising star in the Colombian music scene. He's really... Because you have so many big... Big uh, Colombian artists, Maluma, J Balvin, Carol G. I mean, I think he might kind of reach that level. We might hear more from Ryan actually here on the top five. It's exciting when you can pick out those stars who might have that real breakthrough uh, crossover appeal, particularly I'm sure they always have eyes on the US market, Fernando, which is of such course. an important one. Um, what in about Europe as well, Ryan Castro, in fact, is in Europe at the moment. He's there doing a little tour. So Okay, check him out. Uh, find the details. I don't know where he's playing. I'm sure you probably do know, don't you, Fernando? Madrid, Paris, everywhere. All around. Um, who's at number four? Number four, I am pretty sure you know this track, Tom. And shall we have a listen? I'm not going to review which Go track on. is it. Let's have a listen. Number four. My power would grow like the grapes that thrive on the vine. 
up to you. You know that, right, Tom? But remind our of eager listeners. This is We Don't Talk About Bruno from uh, the Disney movie Encanto, which, funnily enough, talks about the Madrigal family who lives in the mountains of Colombia. It's very beautiful. Very beautiful. I, I haven't seen the film, but I've heard oh, the soundtrack. Good fun, it's very good. Definitely on my list, Tom. And it's interesting because I was looking, I mean, are there any Colombians involved? And I think the main character, uh, the voice is by Carolina Gaitan. She's a Colombian pop star. She was on the X Factor in Colombia. Uh, she also did a few soap operas as well. So she does have kind of a, an acting career. I really like, and can you believe, Tom, that this is going to be one of the most successful Disney songs ever? More than Let It Go uh, from, from the Wait Frozen film. Wait a minute. Film. More yes. than Let It Go. It, it's, it, it's still number one in the US. It's been there for a few weeks. It's been such a crazy phenomenon because, and, and, and I think Encanto was kind of a slow burner. I think when it was mm. out, you know, people liked it, but, you know, the soundtrack didn't go to number one at the same spot. But after a few months, we're still talking about Bruno. Uh, I'm still, Got the joke? <laughs> I'm still, it's very good, Fernando. I'm still having to, having to. It was a pleasure to watch Encanto, certainly the first time, maybe the second time third time starting to great now I'm up into double figures especially now it's even on the global countdown you know? right, there's no escape from it it's probably be playing when I get home to my house let's move on on that basis to number three we're heading to Medellin now uh, which in fact I have to talk about Medellin even though it's not the biggest city in Colombia I think it's one of the most musical ones so many of their top artists come from that city so there's a very strong music scene there so let's have a listen from Blast he is from, Colo- from Medellin and Ryan Castro is back and this is a remix of a track called Kien TV. Let's have a listen. Andan sueltas y loca. Un tro de amigas que los fines se topan. Toman champaña y lo mezclan con mota. El polvo rosa le sube la nota y nos vemos en el after. Mira cómo lo mueve. Una peli que no sale ni en tele. Dice que es santa, pero ahora quién te do you like that one? You're swaying around yes. there, Fernando, in your seat. I, I think this, this kind of music makes me dance a little bit. And, you know, I do speak a little bit of Spanish, though. And the lyrics, I mean, it's again, this time they're not drinking rum. They're drinking champagne with a little bit of pot. You know, so, yeah, I mean, that's what they're doing in the in this song. But And Blast is so young and he, apparently he's quite religious as well. Okay. And that's why he chose the name Blast uh, without the E so it's B-L-E-S-S-D so quite religious but maybe not but as drinking. robust on his spelling <laughs> exactly and not robust and maybe uh, religious and I wonder is there an ecclesiastical note uh, to the song that's at number two because it's from monastery I'm thinking of Maybe some simple human voice, a liturgical number, perhaps? That's very confusing, actually, because indeed our next track is called Monastery. And, and again, talking to the lyrics, I don't think it's really religious in a way, because they're talking about bikinis and then monastery. I need to understand <laughs> kind of this connection very some well. Some deeper research required yes. for and, them. And guess who's back? It's Ryan Castro again, but with another musician, uh, Fade. Let's have a listen to Monastery, and then I'll tell you actually what the lyrics are talking about. Comiendo de esa cherry, eso allá abajo te sabe a blueberry. Cuando yo te quito la combi de Burberry, tengo un par de blones y una de Don Perry. Baby, que tú tienes que me tienes viciado. Te quiero sin ropa. The beat always drops in such a it's way. It's pretty good, isn't it? It makes us it's move. It's very irresistible. You, you were moving, actually. Yeah, I know. You were surprised by that, right? But, but again, the track, there's a lot of name dropping here. I, I was uh, describing the brands who were name dropped. Don Perignon, Burberry, Valentino, Moschino, Ducati... 
people, parties, and yeah, and it is a song about sex. So there's nothing related to to monastery. So I am a little bit intrigued why they chose this title in a way. Maybe it's ironic or something, Fernando. Uh, Ryan. Three in the top five. This guy's everywhere. He is everywhere, but he's not a number one. Oh, okay. Who uh, is at the top of the tree then? We have a duet. And, and, and it's interesting because they say the G's have united. And I say the G's because it, this song is by Carol G, a huge Colombian star, and Becky G from the US. So all the G's are in this song. Is Kenny G involved? Kenny G is not there. I think he could do a remix of that song. It's kind of a, a diss track, okay. you know, so it's quite a punchy it's a bit, in a bit way. spicy, is it? Very spicy. Let's have a listen. Becky G and Carol G with Mommy. Yeah, it's very toxic. Don't be, you know, fooled by the kind of slightly sunny beats. They're saying, don't call me again. I even throw away my cell phone. You're so toxic. I don't want to hear anymore. You didn't even leave a trace in my life. So it's proper drama in a way. So, and I was reading, apparently the song is also about sisterhood in a way. So maybe they were both being dumb to have problems in the relationships, but they're still united, singing together and dissing their former boyfriends. Uh, do you think a bit of Kenny G's saxophone noodling could, I don't know, elevate that to another level? What do you reckon? I think so. I think, you know, if Kenny G's listening here, that he should Apparently do a remix. in of religiously. Course. And can I be honest, I don't mind a little bit of Kenny G here and there. I think even the younger generation, they are into Kenny G, Tom. Is this ta- true? Do you have statistical evidence of I this? don't have statistical evidence, but, you know, from the trends I've been observing, I think Kenny G could be definitely kind of a, a star for the younger generation. Wow. Watch this space, everybody. Exactly. <laughs> That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best interviews here from Monaco 24. Thanks for listening.